Those of you who know me know how much I love to teach from the Old Testament. And I do so for a number of reasons. One, uh, and perhaps most importantly, it's Scripture. It's a part of the Bible. We sometimes forget that the Old Testament is the Scripture of which Paul spoke when he said, All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and encouragement. It was, in fact, the only Bible that Jesus and the apostles had. It was from the Old Testament that they preached, and the apostles based their writings upon the Old Testament. And if we ignore it, essentially what we're doing is setting aside three-fourths of the revelation that God has given to us. So uh, we ignore it at our own loss. The second reason I like to teach from the Old Testament is most people don't have the foggiest idea what, uh, what's going on in the Old Testament. As I've said before, that's the clean part of our Bibles. Uh, everything from Matthew on is usually well-thumbed, but uh, if you turn to the Old Testament of most people's Bibles, uh, it's unmarked and, and clean. I used to ask in groups like this, how many have recently read the book of Psalms? And I'd always get a number of hands. Proverbs would always uh, elicit the same sort of response. And then I would say, how many of you have recently read the book of Hezekiah? And I'd always get a few hands. But uh, Hezekiah, as you know, was not, it's not a book in the Bible. He was an 8th century Judean king. See, you just learned something. <laughs> or I would say, how many of you have read the book of Ecclesiasticus? And that would always get a response. Hands would go up, and I'd have to point out that Ecclesiasticus is not a book in the Old Testament. The book in the Old Testament is called Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiasticus is an apocryphal book. It doesn't belong in the Old Testament at all. But I quit doing that because it got too embarrassing. <laughs> but it is an unknown portion of the Bible, and therefore I, I love to expose people to that part of the revelation that they're not yet familiar with. A third reason is that I believe that the New Testament is likely to be misconstrued if we don't understand the Old Testament. We would all agree that the Old Testament is, complete, is incomplete if that's all we have. But I think a parallel statement is that the New Testament is incomprehensible if we don't know the Old Testament. The Bible is like a two-act play. If you leave before the uh, play is over, if you leave in the middle, you won't uh, know what happened at the end. You won't know the outcome. Uh, but if you come late and you arrive at the end of the first act, you may misconstrue the plot because you don't know the characters, you don't see how the drama is developing. So it's my conviction that we need to know both the Old Testament and the New Testament in order to understand fully uh, the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is not an easy book to understand because we're talking about a very ancient text. Parts of the Bible are literally older than the pyramids. Uh, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he can be dated sometime in the middle of the second millennium, but he was using material that was much older than he. It goes way back into antiquity, as far back as we have any human records. Secondly, it's, uh, there's a vast cultural gap between our culture and the culture of the Old Testament. We're talking about an Eastern culture, and most of us don't understand what's going on. However, it is possible to understand the Old Testament. There are histories. There are uh, 
works by specialists in these languages that enable us to understand the language of the Old Testament in this setting. There may be some things that we'll never understand, but the broad outlines of the Old Testament are, are, are very clear. Anyone can understand them. Now, the theme of the Old Testament, the theological center around which everything is arranged for myself, is the promise. The promise. Now, I'm not talking about prediction. The Old Testament is full of prediction. It's something greater than mere prophecy in that sense. Nor am I talking about those assurances of God's uh, care and protection and faithfulness that we refer to as promises. Most of us have or know about uh, promise boxes, little cards with verses of Scripture on them that contain promises of God. We're not talking about that sort of thing. It's a bigger concept. It's the idea that Paul spells out in the third chapter of Galatians. If you turn with me to that chapter, I'd like to read it as an introduction to our study this morning. Galatians 3, 26 and following. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, that is, you were placed into Christ by your spiritual baptism... You were placed by the Spirit of God into the body of Christ. Have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is a reference to the church, the people of God. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed or offspring according to promise. And there's our word, promise. In other words, something was said to Abraham. Abraham was promised something, and we're the heirs of that promise, whatever it is. That's the mainstream of the Old Testament. In Acts 6, when Paul appears before Agrippa to defend his ministry, Agrippa was the uh, Roman consul in in Palestine, and when he appeared uh, for trial before this man, he said, I am here I am defending myself because of the promise given to our forefathers. In other words, he identifies his preaching of the gospel with the promise that's delivered in the Old Testament. And the promise has to do with Abraham, as we see from Galatians 3. God promised something to Abraham, and uh, the promise was confirmed over and over again to his descendants. And the promise essentially is this, that through Abraham and his seed, God would mediate salvation to the world. That's how God would save the world. He would bring about salvation through Abraham and his descendants. Now, the first statement of the promise was not to Abraham. As we saw two weeks ago, there were intimations of promise long before Abraham's time. After the fall, God said to Eve, your descendant, your seed, will crush the head of the serpent. There was a promise given that some representative of the human race would stamp on the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. The, the name serpent always occurs with an article which indicates it's a title. He is the enemy of mankind. The seed of the woman will stamp on the head of the serpent, but in so doing he will bruise his heel. Now that's the first statement of the gospel. Somewhere in history a man is coming along who will crush the head of the serpent. It'll be a lethal blow. He'll put to death mankind's enemy, but in so doing, he will hurt himself. And that's the first giving of the gospel. And as we saw two weeks ago, 
Now, there is, uh, there's the animation there again that this is more than a mere man. This is a God-man. That God himself somehow would enter the human race and he would be responsible for putting the serpent to death. Now, this is the beginning of these stories that you find in pagan religions of a God who dies and who rises again and who in his death gives new life to man. Now, you've probably heard that Christians borrowed that idea from pagan religions, but really it's the other way around. That idea or that dream or hope was rooted in this promise, the first giving of the gospel, the good news, in a world in which there was very little that was good. God says, I'm going to set things right. One of these days, a man will come along who will put to death mankind's enemy. Now, as you read on through Genesis, you see that despite the promise, man uh, didn't do very well. Things went from bad to worse. Man literally went mad. And so the flood came, described in Genesis 6 and following. The greatest disaster in human history. Almost all of the human race was wiped out except eight. There were only eight survivors. Man had uh, multiple opportunities to respond to the good news. Noah preached righteousness, according to the New Testament. There were godly men like Enoch. The, uh, the uh, doors of the ark were open right down to the end. Anyone could have been saved, but they preferred to do it themselves. That's been the fundamental problem with the human race from the very beginning. We want to do it all by ourselves. I always think of Bill Cosby's satire on Noah's flood and Noah's word to the, uh, to the people outside the ark. How long do you think you can tread water? That's been our problem. We think we can tread water for 40 days and 40 nights. We want to do it all by ourselves rather than accept God's way of salvation. Instead of coming into the ark, we want to save ourselves. So the whole race, with the exception of eight, chose to go their own way. And the human race almost perished, except for Noah and his family. Then when they came out of the ark, the promise was reaffirmed to Noah and his three sons, Ham, Sham, and Japheth, and their, uh, their families. Now let's turn back to Genesis 9 to look at uh, Noah's oracle. Noah was a prophet, and he said in verse 25, Genesis 9, 25, this, uh, this occurs immediately after their departure from the uh, ark. Some time had, I shouldn't say immediately, some time had elapsed. We don't know how long that period was. But in the interim, one of Noah's sons, Ham, was uh, guilty of some perverted sexual practice. We don't know what it is, and in our pursuit of the promise this morning, we're not going to take time to talk about that. But there was some perversion that could be found in Ham's line. And Noah says that this is a prediction, not a curse. He's simply anticipating the direction that, that Ham's son, Canaan, will take from this point on. So he said, Cursed or cursed is Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Now, this is not a curse upon the black race. Though Ham was the father of the black race, he was also the father of the Egyptians and the Canaanites and a number of other uh, uh, segments of, of the human race. This is a a prediction of the direction that one of Ham's descendants, Canaan, would take. He'll be cursed. He'll be sterile. A servant of servants he'll be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
May God enlarge Japheth. That was another of the sons of, of Noah. And the prediction is that he would be enriched numerically. And let God dwell in the tents of Shem. Most of our translations have him, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, but the near antecedent of that pronoun is God. Let God dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, the sons of Noah are the original three stocks from which the human race sprang. There was Ham, who became the father of those races that settled in Canaan and then in Africa, North Africa and the interior of Africa. Japheth became the father of the Indo-European people. They uh, spread north of the land of Canaan from Europe across to India. And the Semitic races, the descendants of Shem, settled in the Mesopotamian Valley around Babylon, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Now, the prediction here is that God would dwell in the tents of Shem. That is, the Semitic people would carry on the promise. You see what's happening? In Genesis 3, the promise is given that a representative of the human race will set things right. In other words, he won't be an angel. He won't be an alien from outer space. He'll be a man. And as we saw, a God-man. Now the line is narrowed to the line of Shem. He could be an Assyrian. He could be a Babylonian. He could even be an Arab. Or he could be a Hebrew. We don't know which. But we know that the line is going to be narrowed down through one-third of the stock of the, of the human race down through the Semitic people. Now in chapter 10... Moses describes for us what is what's called the table of nations. There are 70 nations described springing from these three sons of Noah. And uh, it's Moses' practice to take up the least significant aspect of the story first and dismiss it and then move on to more significant things. So he starts with Japheth. That's the one from whom most of us sprang. That gives us some idea of God's estimate of uh, our line of the race throughout human history. Then in verses 6 and following, the sons of Ham are given by their divisions. And finally, the sons of Shem are the Semitic people in verse 21. And they're all a bunch of nobodies. No one ever heard of them before. There are some notables. Asher, who became the father of the Assyrian race and a few others. But who ever heard of Arphaxad and Aram and Eber and Peleg and so forth? They're all unknown. People we have no, uh, no knowledge of. Then in chapter 11, you have a description of these Semitic people, the people that came down into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley building a tower. A tower whose top, they said, would reach into heaven. Let's make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's typical of man's achievements that he always describes them in this way. It's our tendency to use hyperbole any time we describe something we do. Man is the greatest. You may remember uh, President Nixon's comment when we finally put a man on the moon. His comment was, this is the greatest achievement in the history of mankind. What nonsense. It wasn't at all. But that's our tendency, to describe our, our achievements in this way. We'll build a, a tower that will reach to heaven. We'll displace God. We'll move him out of the universe. We'll be God. And uh, we read in verse 5 that God came down to see their little tower. And he scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the city. 
And as you read through chapter 11, you might think that's the most significant thing in this chapter, but it isn't. The really significant thing was happening down in the southern part of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, a little bit later after the building of this, of this tower. A man named Terah had a little boy whose name was Abram. And that was the greatest thing that had happened so far in human history. That's the way with God. We think that our achievements are the great achievements, the historic achievements. And God works through some insignificant event to bring about the plan of, to bring salvation to the world. This is what is described in chapter 11. You have all of these people that nobody ever heard about, are Pakshad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sarag, Nahor, Terah. And Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram. Now, Abram lived about 1800 or 1900 B.C. And he lived in Ur of the Chaldees, down in southern Mesopotamia. That was a vast cultural complex. That was the center of the, of the civilized world in those days. It had been in Egypt, but Egypt was in decline. The pyramids were old when Abram was born. And now, really, the center of the world was, was Ur, and in southern Mesopotamia. They were building vast uh, monumental structures. They had discovered the circulatory system long before Harvey did, thousands of years before Harvey rediscovered it. They had mapped the circulation of the human body. They were doing geometry long before the Greeks or Arabs. Uh, it was a very complex civilization, but it was a very empty, desolate civilization. And we know from reading their literature that, that they were empty and barren. There's no hope in the world. G.K. Chesterton said, Pessimism is not in being tired of evil, but in being tired of good. Despair does not lying, lie in being weary of suffering, but in being weary of joy. It is when, for some reason or other, the good things in society no longer work that society begins to decline, when its food does not feed and its cures do not cure, when its blessings do not bless. And that's exactly the state of things in the world at that time. Empty, barren, hopeless, desolate, and God raises up a man, Abram, to bless the world. In chapter 12, verse 1, we read that the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Therefore, be a blessing. It's a command. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. He left Ur, he went to Haran with his father, and as soon as his father died, apparently waited in Haran out of respect for his family and his clan. Then he went down into, into Canaan in obedience to the Lord. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had acquired and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, there are a number of things to observe about, about Abram. In the first place, he was not a religious man. 
I think our tendency is to think of Abram as a Christian in a bathrobe. That's the way I always envisioned him, because my Sunday school superintendent used to play the part of Abram in all the, the Sunday school plays, and he'd have a Scofield Bible under one arm and he'd on a bathrobe. And that's the way I envisioned him, quaint, you know, living way back there in the past, but very knowledgeable. But I don't think Abram was a dispensationalist. He didn't believe in immersion by baptism. He didn't know any of these things. He was actually a pagan. He was a moon worshiper, as far as we know. His name was acquired from the, from the pagan world. Abram means high father. It's the name of a pagan god. He didn't know anything. He was just a man who had a, a heart for God. Somehow he was searching for God. And he was willing to go wherever God sent him. The second thing I would say about Abram is that he was unknown, virtually. Everybody knows Abram today, but in those days, no one knew who he was. His name is very common in the ancient Near Eastern world. It's as common as our name, Bill, or Jack, or John, or Sam. It's a very common name. It occurs all over. It's unknown. He was probably uh, what today would be a trucker. He ran a string of donkeys out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees fleet of donkeys. He was a caravaneer, wealthy man, probably influential, powerful, but just your average working class, stiff, <laughs> virtually unknown. But that's so like God to take people who are nobodies and make somebody out of them. Where do we ever get the idea that you have to be somebody to be somebody? Paul says God delights to take the foolish things and the foolish people of this world to confound the wise. Took this simple man and made somebody out of it. That's what God loves to do. The third thing I'd like for you to notice is the place to which he called him. We can't help but wonder why he didn't leave him in, in Ur of the Chaldees. That was a strategic center. That was the center of culture in that day, but he didn't leave him there, he took him over to the land of Canaan, which was the darkest place on the face of the earth. The Canaanites, by this time, had progressed to the point that even the Babylonians couldn't stand them. They were so morally decadent. We know that from the writing of the Babylonians. Perverted people. And yet God called Abram out of a cultural center to the darkest place on the face of the earth. Why? Because geographically, that was the most strategic place in the world at that time. According to chapter 10, the human race had scattered all over the world, to the north, the south. And uh, from that standpoint, the land of Canaan is by far the most strategic place. It was the crossroads of the world. If you lived in Babylon and you wanted to travel to Egypt, you didn't travel across the Sahara Desert, at least not if you were in your right mind. You came up through the Fertile Crescent and down through the land of Canaan into Egypt. If you lived in Europe or in Greece and you wanted to travel down to Egypt, you didn't go across the Mediterranean Sea because their ships weren't capable of making that journey. You hugged the shoreline and you went by Canaan or you went overland down the trade route where Abram located himself. According to this passage, he traveled from Shechem to Bethel to the Negev and those places were located on the north-south trade route that ran right straight through the land of Canaan. Anybody who wanted to travel to any other part of the world in those days had to go through Canaan. And this passage tells us that 
Abraham located himself there and he put up his little tent and he built a little altar and he made proclamation in the name of the Lord in that spot because that was the most strategic place in the world. Now I want you to notice some elements of the blessing. Verse 2. He says, I'll make you a great nation. Now that's certainly true today numerically. There are some 14 million Jews or more living today and no one knows how many millions have lived since Abram's time. But uh, I think this prediction is fulfilled uh, in more than the numbers. The Jews are a great people. Wherever they have gone, they've had a tremendous impact upon the, the societies where they've lived. Twelve percent of all Nobel Prize winners are Jews, and yet they're less than one-half of one percent of the total population. Statesmen, Leaders of every type, artists, scientists, warriors. Uh, some of you may remember the Oliphant cartoon that showed the Israeli soldier standing on the banks of the Suez Canal, and he has a the soldier has an Uzi submachine gun overhead, shouting to some Egyptians that are swimming across the Suez Canal. And the caption says, "And if you come back again, I'll send my husband." They're just a great people, a fantastic people. And it's part of this promise. I'll make you a, a great nation. And he says, I'll bless you. I'll enrich you. The, the, the word blessed means to make fertile, to make potent, to make powerful. And he says, I'll make your name great. Everyone knows of Abram today. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Those who attribute worth to you, he says, I will bless, I will enrich spiritually. Uh, but then in the line where he says, I will, those who curse you I will curse, there are actually two Hebrew words that are used in English. We translate both with the word curse. But the first means to take lightly. Those who take you lightly, I will curse, I will make sterile. In other words, uh, people's uh, state was determined by the attitude which they had toward Abraham and his descendants. If they took seriously Abram's lifestyle and his message, then they would be blessed. But if they didn't, if they were indifferent to it, their lives would be empty and barren and sterile. Now, I ask the question, uh, why? Is it because uh, Abram was inherently religious? Did he have some sort of genius for religion, as Heimpotek says? No, if you know anything at all about Abram, if anything, he had a genius for fouling up. He goes down to Egypt, jeopardizes Sarah's life. He was a blight on the Egyptians while he was there. He was a curse on them. They couldn't wait to get him out of town. And as you read through the rest of the story of Abram, he had his ups and downs, but all the way through, he was a man who had a heart. God. He just wanted to be useful. He wanted to trust in God. Count, him, count on him. And when we come to chapter 15, the promise is affirmed once again that he'll be a great nation. And Abram, by this time, is some 85 years old. His wife is 75 or so, and she's barren and incapable, apparently, of having children. And Abram says, O Lord God, what will you... I'm reading verse 2 of chapter 15. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, he would adopt 
the son of his servant, which was commonly done in that, in that culture. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Took Abram outside, had him look at the stars, try to count the innumerable stars. He said, Abram, that's how many children you'll have. And Abram looked at his own body. It was as good as dead, Hebrews says. He looked at Sarah. She was incapable of having children. And he said literally, Amen. I believe it. Sounds crazy, but I trust you. I believe it. And God said, this man is all right. He's okay. Paul says this was, uh, it was Abram's faith that made it possible for God to reckon him as, as righteous. It's all Abraham had. He was just a believer. He trusted God. He wasn't known. He wasn't important. He wasn't prestigious. He was just a man who trusted God. And as the story unfolds, God affirms this covenant again with his descendants, with Isaac and then with Jacob, and the promise goes on and on and on down through history. This became the line through which God brought salvation to the world because there was a man who was available. He just he made his body available to God. That's all. And you know, that's, that's the, the name of the game for us. The only command in this promise is be a blessing. God says, I'll bless you, I'll bless you, I'll bless you. I'll give you everything that you need. Now be a blessing. Let's go out and bless the world. Let God use you to be an instrument to reconstruct lives and heal hurts and set things right. You know, that's what we're here for. We're a part of this uh, line. We'll talk more about it next week. But we're a part of this, of this historic line through which God intends to bring blessing to the world. We're not here to make a lot of money. If we do, fine. But that's not the priority. We're not here to climb to the top of our business to make a name for ourselves or to run faster or jump higher than anyone else in the world. It's not the purpose of it all. The purpose of our being here is to be a blessing wherever we go. I read this last week of a little-known incident in the Battle of Waterloo where the French cavalry broke through Wellington's lines to try to spike their uh, cannon. You know, in those days when they wanted to mobilize their artillery, they drove a nail down in the touch hole and uh, they uh, rendered their, their cannons ineffective. So they charged through Blucher's lines made their way to the cannon. The artillerymen fled. The officer in charge asked for the nails, and everyone had forgotten to bring. And some scholars think that's why Napoleon was so disastrously defeated. And I couldn't help but think of the way we charge through life and miss the point of it all. The reason we're here is to be a source of blessing to the world. Jesus said, if you thirst, come to him. He who believes in me out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. We can be a source of blessing to others as we eat and drink of him. Just let God bless you. Learn of him. Draw from his word, from his power.
from his indwelling presence and be a source of blessing wherever you go. That's going to make life meaningful for you and for me. Uh, It's really true. The more we give ourselves, the more satisfied we are. And the more we try to find ourselves, the more barren and sterile we we become. I was talking to Pat March this past week, and he uh, said something that's stuck in my mind ever since. His problem, and it's my problem as well, is that he's always trying to enlarge his comfort zone. And uh, it's easy to do. We just want to be more comfortable. We want things to be easier for us, but God never promises to make it easy. That's not the goal in life. He will comfort us, but as Paul says, it's so we can comfort others in the distress in which they find themselves. Talked to a young lady last week who plans to leave her husband. Don't be alarmed. It's not anyone here. Uh, But she said she just was tired of suffering. It's too much. Don't want to go through that pain anymore. But, you know, it's never been God's intention to relieve us of pain. Never. But he will comfort us in the pain so we can be a source of blessing to others. That's what we're here for. And that's what makes life meaningful. Let's stand. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the example of this great man, Abram, who is so like us, so much like us, in his tendency to rely upon himself and to fail to fulfill the commission that you'd given to him. And yet we sense that great heart of belief in Abram and the desire to be a vessel that could be filled and flooded and used for your sake. That's our intention as well. Use us today wherever we go to be a blessing, a source of spiritual strength and enrichment to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.